With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Did you ever warrant the arrest for the murder of William Law, who was the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice. A crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Jeff Miller and Jeff Durbin, at this point, in my opinion are the best suspects that we have in the Bill Little murder investigation. I've spent a lot of time researching and reflecting over the last week. The last thing that I want to do is to get tunnel vision at this point in the game. It's really easy to put together the bones of a theory and then get locked into it, ignoring all evidence that contradicts it. The first thing that I think we need to do is take a close look at our theory and compare it to the state's theory and determine which makes the most sense with the evidence that we have in front of us. Let's first consider the state's theory that Jamie Snow killed Bill Little. In Jamie's case, working against him is the fact that over a dozen jailhouse snitches testified that he had confessed to them. On the flip side of that, several of these witnesses have since recanted, admitting that they were either threatened, pressured, or falsely testified in exchange for a deal. And those that haven't recanted all contradict each other. No one can actually get their story straight, and there's just no way to put together any kind of a linear narrative or timeline when you consider all of their statements. And that's not to mention that his ex-wife and ex-in-laws all say that he was home with his family on that Easter Sunday. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I have never been able to piece together a working theory, whereas Jamie Snow killed Bill Little. Now, the Jeffs, on the other hand, so far, everything fits right together, like pieces of a puzzle. In contrast to Jamie's ex-wife saying that she knows for a fact that he was home with her that night, Jeff Miller's wife, while still married to him, told police that he confessed to her that he was the one who shot and killed Bill Little. The best eyewitness that we have, Danny Martinez, described a short and thin man leaving the station that night. Jamie is 6'2 and medium build, whereas Jeff Miller, on the other hand, is around 5'6 and only 125 pounds. 
Miller's wife told police that he committed the murder with Jeff Durbin driving his getaway car. Then a Crime Stoppers tip reveals that someone came forward with information that Durbin told him that he was involved in Bill's murder with one other person. Then we have our tipster who informed me that Jeff Durbin used to brag to everyone that he used a taxi cab as a getaway car in multiple armed robberies which we know to be true since a few months after Bill's death, both Miller and Durbin were charged with three other armed robberies where Durbin drove a taxi cab as a getaway car. And then, of course, we have Jeff Durbin's connection to Wiley Holt, one of the original witnesses who says that he was at the station just minutes before the murder and knew what happened minutes after. The main focus of today's episode is going to be to see if we can connect the dots between Jeff Durbin and Wiley Holt. At this point, we only have our tipster's word to go by that Wiley worked with Jeff's dad and that he owned the cab company that Jeff drove for. But before we get into the research portion of this episode, I thought that you'd all like to hear Jamie's reaction to our latest discovery. OC will result in inmate disciplinary action, and the involved end user's phone number will be globally blocked from future <coughs> calls from all Illinois DOC facilities. Thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now. Hey, Bob. Hey, Jamie. What's new? What's going on? Oh, lots of things. <laughs> lots of things. <laughs> I've been I've been dying to hear from you since. Uh, ran through that ran down a bunch of leads last week and uh i I think we finally i think we're finally getting closer to some answers in the in in bill's murder case what's going on well you you remember from the the lead sheets the the two jeffs jeff miller and jeff durbin yeah okay so to refresh your memory in november 91 jeff miller's wife talked to police karen yeah, and she said that, that Jeff had confessed to her that he shot Bill. Yeah. She said that he said he shot Bill, and he did it with Jeff Durbin. Then, a few years later, in 93, somebody came forward with an anonymous tip saying Jeff Durbin came to him and told him that he was involved in the murder with another guy. Right, right. I I, I, I think I remember those tips. I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't think I remember the... Uh... The second one you talked about, that was a tip that it came in? Yeah, it was a Crime Stoppers tip. Okay. Yeah, I don't I don't remember that one. I know when I got the discovery materials, after I'd been convicted, I, I saw their names and, uh, and, and saw that they were doing a lot of armed robberies around Bloomington. Yeah. In August of 91, they both got arrested for three other armed robberies. And it was another Clark gas station a mobile station, and an Econo Lodge hotel. Okay. In the those three crimes, Jeff Miller was the, the trigger man. He was the guy with the gun that went in and did the robbing. And Jeff Durbin right. served as his getaway driver. Okay. So I've always thought these guys were, were good suspects. I mean, the MOs are just too similar. They were doing it at the same time, same types of places. Yeah. And Durbin was, the newspaper report show, because that's all we have, was that he was using a taxi cab as a getaway driver. Yeah, I've seen that. By looking at the reports, I thought, well, these guys seem like good suspects. They both have confessed to different people, supposedly. But, you know, that's what happened to you, too, so I don't put too much weight in that. Right. I've always believed whoever did this, Bob, was that 
with an armed robber. That's what they do. That's their MO. These mm-hmm. these aren't, you know, I mean, I guess it could be a first time, but uh, the first time is always the first time, so I guess it could be like that. But, you know, I, I just, uh, I was always surprised that they were, they, they seem to have been cleared as suspects without any, there is absolutely nothing in the discovery materials for either one of them as far as where they were, what their alibi was. It was like they never checked them out. Right. Well, I think the biggest problem was that I, I think Crow was so hung up on Gutierrez's description that, you know, you see a lot of the, the suspects where he'll put, you know, this guy was African-American, so cleared. And in Jeff Miller's case, he never talked to Durbin, but in Jeff Miller's case, it says he's only five foot six, hundred and twenty-five pounds, cleared, no scar on his chin. Yeah, they did that to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you if you go through the lead sheets, you'll see that there were a there were a bunch of people that were being cleared early on in the investigation only because they didn't have a, a scar on their chin or an earring in their ear. Right. And so now listen to how all this comes together now. So they already seem like good suspects. Crow clears him because he doesn't fit Gutierrez's description. Well, I find out, you, do you remember um, the name Wiley Holt that was... I do remember, I do, I do remember Wiley Holt. He was a cab driver. Yep, so he was a cab driver that showed up at 753, spent 23 bucks or whatever, got, he said he got yeah. gas and oil, accounted for one of the things on the register. When I originally went through Wiley's stuff, Seemed pretty, you know, and pretty innocuous. He came into the police station, sounds like voluntarily around one in the morning, says, hey, I was there. I talked to the attendant. And by the way, there was this brown car with these black guys in it. Yeah. But it was, you know, roughly 27 minutes before Bill was killed when he was there. Gotcha. Doesn't mean a whole lot to me until I get an anonymous tip that tells me that Jeff Durbin used to work construction for his dad, Frank Durbin, who was a convicted felon. Okay. I don't know. I didn't know any of them. But. Mm-hmm. Well, he used to brag, apparently, to all of the guys he worked with that he was a great wheel man, that he used to be, he was, he was a getaway driver, and he could, he could be a getaway driver for anybody because he had the perfect plan. He had this brown Ford Granada that he would use because it was inconspicuous to scout, and then he would use his taxi cab to be the actual getaway driver because he could cook the books, change his logs to make it look like he was on the other side of town. And, of course, that matches up with the fact that he was later arrested for doing exactly that. So let me ask you something. Uh Do you think that Wiley Holt would have known that they were doing these armed robberies in the cab? Well, here's the thing. Wiley Holt was Jeff Durbin's boss. Jeff Durbin was driving Wiley Holt's cab that night. Wow. Awfully suspicious, man. I mean, that's awfully suspicious that you're you're dealing with these these guys that are doing these armed robberies in your cab and you just what coincidentally you're at the Clark gas station where somebody shot and killed. Well, and there's more there's more to it than that. So when he went into the station, he says that he was there at eight fifteen PM, which is you know, right when the last no sale and the silent alarms getting pressed, right before Bill's killed. Right. He says, and I just missed this, I think everybody did before, but he says he left there, went downtown to the bus station, which is a four minute drive. Yeah, it's right down the road. Yep. 
says he gets to the bus station. He said, what did he say? Shortly thereafter, when he got there, he said he went inside and bought an orange soda. And when he comes out uh, from buying, getting the orange soda, his son, who's also a cab driver, tells him over the radio that there was a kid shot and killed at the Clark station. How would he know that he'd already been shot and killed? Exactly. I mean, how would he? How would his son know that? That's exactly my point. So, originally, when you're looking at eight fifteen, that means he's at the bus station by say eight twenty, and then whatever shortly thereafter means, within a few minutes, he's being told that a kid was shot and killed at the Clark station. That's already too soon. But when you push that timeline up, and we know from the register tape that he was actually at the gas station at seven fifty three. Which means, say, you know, if he peters around there for a little bit, say he doesn't leave till 8, he's at the bus station by 8.05. He's hearing about the fact that Bill was killed, that a kid was shot and killed at that gas station before the police knew. Wow. Wow. That's awfully, uh... (laughs) Wow. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's, it's way too soon. And there's more in his report. He says in his report that his son told him that another driver called a guy named Dwayne Dixon told him that he heard the shots and saw somebody speed away from the station. Police never talked to Dwayne Dixon. They never talked to Dwayne Dixon. No, at least not that we have record of. Who says that he saw, heard the shots, saw somebody speed away. But forget about the fact for a minute the police didn't talk to him. I don't think it's possible for anyone to have heard shots and seen somebody peel away from the station. Both the eyewitnesses... Yeah, I'd like to know how uh, he heard the shots when Jeff Filo didn't hear them. Right. And we've done some some research and stuff, and I and I think it's perfectly reasonable that Jeff Pilo didn't hear him with a twenty two caliber inside of a closed commercial building, and he's across the street. It's it's a quiet gun anyway. Okay. But knowing that, how did this Dwayne Dixon hear the shots? Yeah. And how did he see somebody peel away from the parking lot when Pilo's on scene? There's no cars peeling away from the parking lot. We have Martinez's statement, Luna's statement, and as we've investigated throughout these last few months. I think we can throw Gutierrez's statement away. I think he was there at 7 p.m. I think the register tape did confirm. I think he got his times mixed up. I also think he's a bit of a space cadet anyway, the way his story changed. I do think that Martinez and Luna did see, if you go to their original statements, they saw the person leaving. They changed their statements over the year to help convict you. But if you look at their original statements, I think they did see the person leaving. 
Well, you know, Danny Martinez said, you know, that the person was the same height as him, five, I think he's what, five, eight, five, seven? Yeah. Five, seven, five, eight, which is a huge difference in, you know, height with me. Right. But what is not a huge difference as Jamie, Jeff Miller was cleared because he was only five foot six and had shorter brown curly hair. If you look at Martinez's composite and listen to his statement, he said the guy was about his height, which was 5'8", and thin, 125 yeah, pounds. right. He described Jeff Derb or Jeff Miller. You know, we've never talked to uh, Karen Miller, neither. I think Tara has said that they've tried to talk to her. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't think that they ever have, and I'm not sure why. Well, I, th- I think that I think that needs to be done. I mean, when you when you take all these connections in, so you got Durbin is connected directly to Wiley Holt and John Holt. Wiley just voluntarily goes into the station. He's at the station moments before the killing. He knows about the murder moments after. Well, what really has got me on this whole scenario is the fact that the Jeffs were using his cab to do the to do the armed robberies that they were doing, and it's just a a coincidence that uh, he happens to be in the Clark Station that night when when Bill Little is murdered, and then he's what he sees a a brown car in the parking lot with 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 two black people in it. I mean, that's classic misdirection, if you ask me. I I think so too. I mean, I I, I, don't I mean, does that make any sense, or am I just seeing seeing uh, something where there is nothing? I mean, that's. I can absolutely see that happening. I think it makes perfect sense. I, I don't know enough yet about Wiley Holt. Hopefully by the time Sunday rolls around and the rest of this episode is put together, I'll know more. But my first thought was, why does he voluntarily go into the station and say, I saw these? And he says he's there. Now, of course, he does. And he says he can't find his receipt. Also, by the way, a cab driver can't find his receipt. A cab driver, a cab owner of the company can't find his receipt. Seems odd, but he says he's there at 8.15, which is right about the time it happens, and then says, oh, yeah, there was a brown car, but it was a black guy in the brown car. To me, the, the, whole, the, the, the only purpose I could think for somebody to come in and give that information is if they genuinely were a concerned citizen and thought they knew something, or exactly what you said, which is they were going to the station to try to misdirect the police because if there were witnesses that saw a brown car, now he's telling them, I saw the people in the brown car and they were black guys. And Durbin had a brown car. Mm-hmm. He had a brown Ford Granada. Wow. Mm-hmm. Boy, that sure would have been helpful at trial, I'll tell you. Yeah. So if they ever were, were to allow us to do some DNA testing on the fingerprints that were recovered and it comes back and I get a DNA hit to either one of the Jeffs, does that not advance my claims of, of actual innocence? It certainly does in my opinion. Well, I think it does as far as the statute in the state of Illinois goes. And I mean, you know, with just that, Bob, just with what you've just what you just told me, I mean, that should be enough for, you know, Don Knapp or anybody to say, okay, let's do this. I mean, Jesus Christ, man. I mean, it's, it's just, un, it's, it's unbelievable to me that they, that people don't, they don't get it, man. It doesn't seem like they actually get it. 
I mean, this is my life, and I mean, they dropped the ball, man. I mean, they. I've always believed when I when I saw those some of those lead sheets where they were saying cleared, no scar on the chin, no earring, cleared, no scar on the chin, on the chin, no earring, and then and then when you fast forward all these years, there was never a follow up. They never went back and said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna dismiss Gutierrez. We need to go back and see what's up with these guys that were original suspects. It never happened. No. You know? They blew it. Yeah, they blew it. And what it really looks like is they were, if they had realized up front to throw out Gutierrez's statement, realizing he was there an hour before the, the offense, and then they focused on what Martinez said the first time. That he was several feet away, but he was looking for a short, thin guy. You have one minute left. With brown hair, I think they would have solved this case in 1991. I think what it was is they didn't believe Luna could make an identification from that distance, so they dismissed him. And with Martinez, I think with Pilo and Williams on the scene or, or close to the scene or whatever and not seeing what Martinez claims he saw, they dismissed him and went with Gutierrez. That's what I think happened. Yeah, and the fact that Gutierrez had a closer look of who they thought was the same yeah. person that Martinez saw. Right. But they were wrong. Man, man, man. That's some good stuff, man. Oh, wow. Well, we're going to run out of time, but I wanted to make sure I filled you in on that. Hopefully I'll catch you on Thursday. If not, we'll we'll talk again next I'll week. I'll try you on Thursday, man. That's awesome, Bob. Thank you so much. I wonder, have you told Tammy this? I did. I told her not to tell you because I wanted to tell you. Okay. All right. Thank you for using Securus. Goodbye. I want to start off by thanking Wendell Mass, Lisa Drake-Williams, and Nina Nixdorf for all of their help researching for this week's episode. All three of these listeners are rock stars and helped out a lot. And now it's time to see if we can connect the dots between Wiley Holt and Jeff Durbin. I want to begin by dissecting Wiley Holt's police interviews. What I'm trying to figure out here is exactly how Wiley plays into all of this. It seems to me that one of three things is going on here. Either Wiley is genuinely a concerned citizen just trying to help and never realized that through his son he was given info that no one but the killer should have had as early as it was revealed to him. Or his trip to the police station was simply a diversion, like Jamie said. Meaning he knew that Durbin and one of his cabs was involved, he knew about what time the murder occurred, and he knew there was a brown car connected. So he went to the police station to say that he was there just before the murder, he saw a brown car, but it was a black guy inside, not Jeff Durbin. Oh, and the car had out-of-state plates. But then we have to ask, would Holt really stick his neck out to protect Durbin just because he was one of his employees? And then we have what I think is probably the least likely scenario. That being that Wiley was actually involved in the robbery. We have to at least consider this based on the fact that he was at the scene around the time of the murder, and he claims to have known what happened before he should have known. So let's start by looking at Wiley Holt's timeline. On the register tape, we see that after 7.28 p.m., there was only one gas purchase before Bill was killed. At 7.53 p.m., we see a sale for $23.10. At 
and I think it's safe to assume that this purchase was in fact made by Wiley. At 1 a.m. when Wiley went into the station, the police hadn't processed the tape yet, as far as I know. He tells police that he bought $21 in gas and one quart of oil, and the total was a little over $23. There's just no way that he could have known those details from the tape without direct knowledge of the purchase. But it is worth noting that according to our tipster, Wiley owned the cab company. And that's important because in his statement, he says that he just worked part-time for American City Cab. Now that bit gets confusing, and I'll get into it in just a minute. But the point is that Wiley tells police that he forgot to get a receipt for his purchase, which could mean nothing, but it is an odd mistake for a seasoned business owner to make. Or was he just a part-time employee? For the time being, let's assume that it was Wiley that made that purchase at 753. The next purchase on the register occurs three minutes later at 756. Someone spent $3.52 on two packs of cigarettes. And then we get a clue as to what was going on at the station, and when Wiley probably left for the bus station. See, at 7.57 p.m., Bill makes the $60 drop into the floor safe. Now, we know from speaking to multiple Clark Station employees that they didn't do cash drops when there were customers in the store if they could at all help it. And this drop was no emergency. It was just a routine $60 drop. The point being that Bill wouldn't have done it unless everyone was clear from the station. Which means Wiley Holt was gone and on his way to the bus station by around 7.57 p.m. Further evidence of this is the fact that when asked if anyone else was at the station, he only mentions the man in the brown car outside. Since we know from the tape that someone made a purchase at 7.56, again, we can conclude that Wiley was gone at least by 7.57 probably by 7.56. Now, I said last week it's about a four-minute drive to the bus station. So if you give Wiley a few extra minutes to get in and out of his car, I think a fair assessment is that he was at the bus station no later than 8.05 p.m., probably closer to 8 p.m. Now, back at the Clark station, Bill was pressing the no-sale button during the robbery at 8.06 p.m., 8.12 p.m., and 8.15 p.m. We know that Bill was still alive at 8.16 p.m. when he pressed the silent alarm button, and at this point, Holt has been at the bus station for around 11 minutes. Then, five more minutes pass, and then Martinez hears the shots while Pilo is across the street. It's 8.21 now, and Wiley has been at the bus station for at least 16 minutes, most likely closer to 20 minutes. Then, a few more minutes passed before it was confirmed that Bill was shot. According to the reports, Pilo entered the station first. He found Bill on the floor and cleared the scene. He then exited and told Officer Williams that the attendant was down. Both then re-enter the station. Pilo feels for a pulse, and they both exit. Then, Williams went back in and tried for a pulse on Bill's neck. When he didn't find one, he decides to start CPR. This is when he flips Bill over, then decides to take a knife out and cut his shirt away, and that's when he sees the bullet wounds. Conservatively, I'd say this process took around three to five minutes after Pilo's 821 arrival. So, police officers on the scene did not know that Bill had been shot until around 825, 20 to 25 minutes after Wiley Holt arrived at the bus station. 
And we can assume that quite a bit more time passed before anyone outside of law enforcement and EMS knew that a shooting had occurred. Remember all the reports we covered months ago where bystanders were asking what happened and if the attendant had been shot. Those questions were asked hours later. The point being, it wasn't common knowledge that the shooting had occurred, even for the bystanders at the scene. Now, let's circle back to Wiley's timeline. We know that he was at the bus station for at least 20 minutes before even the first responding officers knew that Bill had been shot and killed. So let's take a close look at when Wiley says that he knew Bill had been shot. Holt talks to police on two occasions. The first was at 1.10 a.m. when he walked into the station and talks to Officer Sanders. This is a handwritten report, not a transcript. In this interview, Wiley describes the man in the brown car, and then the report reads, quote, He then went downtown and heard of the robbery and shooting shortly thereafter. End quote. Now, this really isn't a whole lot of help, because we don't have his exact words. Sanders is the one who chose the words shortly thereafter. We don't actually know if that's what Holt himself said. But then we have the last paragraph, quote, Wiley Holt says his son, John Holt, a cab driver, informed him that Dwayne Dixon told John Holt that he had heard a shot or shots and saw a vehicle leave the scene at a high rate of speed, end quote. We talked about this last week, and I said someone has to be lying about this. It's impossible for Dixon to have seen and heard what's reported here. It's also difficult to discern if Dixon was the source for Wiley's first hearing about the murder. It's written as a separate paragraph from the one where Holt says that he heard about the shooting shortly thereafter. But I want to talk about Dwayne Dixon for a minute. Last week, I said that police never interviewed him. Well, as it turns out, that's not true. He was never interviewed by detectives after Holt mentioned his name, but he was interviewed by an officer, Newton, during the door-to-door canvas on the night of the murder. In the police report that I have, Dixon's name is redacted, and that's why I missed it. But investigator Ray Wilson dug through all of his many versions of the reports and found him. And as it turns out, someone is lying or caught up in an ugly game of telephone. The report reads as follows, quote, Tiffany Martis and Dwayne Dixon. They said that approximately five minutes before they heard sirens, they heard tire squealing in the area of the Clark station, but they saw nothing. The interview was conducted in a parking lot at the southeast corner of Empire and Linden. End quote. So, no gunshots, no car leaving the scene at a high rate of speed, just some squealing tires. Like I said, could be a lie, or could just be a bad game of telephone. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Now, let's look at Wiley's second statement. This time we have a transcript so we know exactly what he said. This one was conducted the next morning at 9.40 a.m. by Officer Davis. The full transcript is on our website, so I'm going to start with his explanation of when he found out about the shooting. His word choices are critical. First, he says he was at the Clark Station, quote, approximately 9.15 or 20 after, somewhere in there, end quote. He later corrects himself and says that it was 8.15 or 8.20, which is irrelevant because we actually know the exact time he was at the station. 7.53. Or at least that's the time that someone who he's close enough to to know how much they spent was there at 7.53. Remember, he doesn't have the receipt. But then comes the important question. Davis asked, quote, After you left the station, how long was it before you heard about the robbery? Now, this is a great question, and I wish Davis had followed up. But this is how Holt responded. Remember that he's either telling the truth and trying his hardest to timestamp when he got the news, or he's lying. And if that's the case, we can throw the whole interview out and put him right onto our suspect list. This was Wiley's response. Quote, I had time to come down to the bus station, and I walked in and got me an orange soda, and I saw a squad car come by the Luca Grill, and my boy came by and told me about it. End quote. That's it. That's all we have. Davis's next question is asking Wiley if he wants to add anything. There's no follow-up question at all. But let's look at what Wiley said and how he says it. Presumably, Holt is doing his best to pinpoint the time. Our first clue is the fact that he starts with, quote, I had time to come down to the bus station, end quote. There's a very clear point to his word choices here. The timing was obviously very soon after he left the gas station. He doesn't say, well, I was hanging out at the bus station for a while. He says he had time to get to the bus station before he got the news. And then he says that while he was there, he, quote, saw a squad car come by the Luga Grill, and my boy came by and told me about it, end quote. We can assume that any squad car in the area would have been responding to the Clark Station alarm. So it's probably right around 818, which is when they received the alarm, when Wiley saw the squad car take off. And he ties that statement right in with, quote, And my boy came by and told me about it. This series of events sounds like it went like this. Bill presses the alarm. Officers respond. Then Bill's shot. Then Wiley's son, John, tells him about the shooting while he's still at the bus station. Which is a problem. We may, however, have a bigger problem. This interview is produced in transcript form, typed out like a script. But after Davis types, quote, end of statement, there's another section. 
It appears as though the officer had Mr. Holt read the transcript for accuracy and then allowed him to correct any errors. The document is signed at 10 a.m. by both Davis and Holt, and then a new time of 10.07 is typed on the very bottom after the revisions. What I'm getting at is that I don't think this interview was recorded. Someone was transcribing it in real time. Typically, when we get a transcript, an interview has been recorded, and then later someone will take the time to go through it and transcribe it. So what I'm saying is I'm concerned about the accuracy. Although it does appear that whoever was transcribing was typing what was said word for word. I mean, we see statements like, I walked in and got me an orange soda, and they told me they seen it. I don't think that we would see it written that way if someone was just paraphrasing. But in any case, Wiley does make a couple of corrections after reading the statement. He says that there were actually two squad cars leaving the Luca Grill, and that his son told him about the robbery and shooting over the radio, not in person. But with all that confusion aside, what I'm left with is exactly what I said last week. All signs point to the fact that Wiley Holt knew Bill had been shot at a time when the only people who should have known were the first responders and the killers. I know that was a long ride just to end up in the same place where we were last week, but I had to make sure we had every detail right before I moved on to this segment. Who was Wiley Holt, and how was he connected to Jeff Durbin? Let's start with Wiley. Wiley was first described to me as an outstanding citizen in Bloomington. And I think that in a lot of ways he was, but he does have a bit of a shady past, mostly concerning his cab companies. It all starts in 1978 when Wiley wanted to open up a cab company in the city of Normal. He had been driving a cab for a number of years and wanted to go into business for himself. But apparently, the taxicab business is a lot more cutthroat than I ever dreamed of. At the time, and probably still today, City councils have to vote to approve any cab company coming into their city. You can't just paint your car yellow and put a light on top and start operating. And the competition is fierce. In 78, Wiley actually filed a lawsuit against the city of Normal because they wouldn't approve his new business. Now, he eventually got approved and opened up Circle City Cab Company. He ran Circle City Cabs until 1983 when he sold the business to a guy named Leonard Beyer. So far, everything seems to be on the up and up, but that changes pretty quickly. When Wiley sold the company, he signed a non-compete agreement stating that he would not open up another cab service within 10 miles of Bloomington for 10 years. But just two years later, Wiley's son, John Holt, applied to the city requesting to open another cab company. Buyer, of course, was furious as he saw this as Wiley trying to cheat the system having his cake and eating it too, so to speak. He sells his business to get some quick cash and then wants to reopen another cab company in his son's name to run Circle City right out of business. At least, that was the accusation. Nonetheless, John was unsuccessful in 1985, but the Holtz gave it another go in 1990, this time in Wiley's other son's name, Rick Holt. Rick basically tried doing exactly what his brother John had done five years earlier. He petitioned to the city of Bloomington to open another cab company in town. 
But in October of 1990, his proposal was rejected. The city alderman believed that the city already had two cab companies in town and could not support a third. But things get interesting in February of 91. Rick appealed his proposal, and it appears that the city manager, Herman Dirks, was on his side. Dirks told reporters after a February alderman meeting that he has a feeling that some of the aldermen may have changed their minds since they unanimously voted the proposal down just months before. And he wasn't wrong. Two weeks later, the aldermen met again and shockingly approved Rick's new cab company, American City Cab, on February 26th. Technically, on paper, the business belongs to Rick, although the company used Wiley's address as its business address. And then Circle City owner Leonard Beyer filed a lawsuit against Wiley, alleging that he broke the non-compete clause by putting the business in his son's name. I don't know whatever became of the lawsuit, but it does appear that Beyer knew exactly what Wiley Holt was pulling. Holt died in 2000, nine years later. And in his obituary, it says that he was the owner of American City Cab, the company that was supposedly owned and operated by his son, Rick. Now, the reason that it was so important for us to figure this out is because I needed to corroborate our tipster statement that Jeff Durbin worked for Wiley Holt. And all evidence appears to indicate that he indeed was driving a cab for Wiley, the secret owner of American City Cab. The revelation about Durbin's employment was important to me because it demonstrates that our tipster does indeed have inside personal knowledge about Jeff Durbin. On paper, and as far as anyone knew, Jeff worked for Rick Holt, but the tipster knew the real story, which makes his claim that Jeff's father fired him right after the murder seem that much more believable. The timing is also really important. Wiley's new cab company opened just a month before Bill was killed, and Durbin was in jail by August of that year. So there's only a six-month window where Jeff could have been bragging about using Wiley's cab as a getaway car. Prior to that, Wiley didn't have a cab, and after that, Durbin was in jail. And our tipster also says that he had no contact with Durbin after he was fired from his dad's company, which occurred right after the murder. And he says that he took this information, the same tip he gave me, to police in May of 91. Now that's before the three robberies occurred that Durbin and Miller were convicted for. The point being is that Jeff Durbin was only bragging about using the cab as a getaway car in armed robberies within earshot of our tipster during the months of March and April of 1991. And he was never charged with any incidents during that time period, which means he was using the cab as a getaway driver for crimes where he never got caught right around the time Bill was killed. Now, let's go back to the question that I asked at the beginning of this episode. Would Wiley Holt put his neck on the line to protect Jeff Durbin? How were they connected? I think we can say it's confirmed that Jeff worked for Wiley driving the cab. We know that, but that's not the half of it. Like I said last week, according to our tipster, 
Jeff's dad, Frank, and Wiley were also in business together. Allegedly, Wiley helped Frank open Twin Cities Construction. But wait, there's more. In 1984, Wiley's son, Kelly Holt, married a woman named Judy Carol Durbin, Jeff Durbin's first cousin. The two families are very much entwined. Not only are Jeff and Wiley related by marriage, and Jeff's father and Wiley allegedly were in business together, but further research shows that Jeff Durbin's uncle Gene was also, you guessed it, a cab driver. And the connections go even deeper than that, but suffice it to say that Wiley Holt and Jeff Durbin were a lot more than just co-workers. The coincidences don't stop there. At the outset of this episode, I said that I was attempting to parallel the Jamie Killed Bill theory with the Jeff Miller and Jeff Durbin Killed Bill theory. Well, not for nothing, but in 1990, the city of Bloomington had six armed robberies throughout the entire year. But in 1991, after the American Cab Company began operations, there were 20 armed robberies. Now, the robberies continued even after Jamie was arrested for his part in the Freedom Oil robbery. They didn't slow down until after the Jeffs were arrested in August of 91. I left one part out of my conversation with Jamie earlier. When I got him on the phone this week, this is actually the first thing that he said as soon as I mentioned Jeff Miller and Jeff Durbin's names before I even told him what we had discovered. I actually met Jeff Durbin. Oh, did you really? Yeah, he when when I was tried and convicted and and they sentenced me, they sent you to the receiving and classification center in Joliet to be classified where you're gonna go and one day this guy shows up to my cell and uh he looked in and he said, uh, he just stood there and was looking in, you know, and I was just like, what's up, you know? And, uh, he said, are you snow? And I said, I said, yeah, you know, do I know you? What's up? And he just, he just kind of smirked at me and was like, I just wanted to see who they pinned that Clark station on. Really? And, uh, yeah, that's what he said. He said, yeah, I got 30 years for some stuff in Bloomington and, uh, I just, uh, I just wanted to see who you were. And uh, he turned around and walked off. I never saw him again. I always thought, Bob, that that once I got the the discovery materials and I seen that stuff and the the discovery materials about his name and all that, I I thought that was really strange. Thank you all for listening and being a part of this army. Your love and support means the world to me. I just want to remind all of you that the NBI crew is taking the holiday season off, so there will be no episodes for the next two weeks. The follow-up for this episode will air on January 10th. So for those of you that celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas, or Happy Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or whatever you're celebrating. If you're not celebrating anything, I just hope you have a great two weeks and a happy new year to all of you. Now, if you're really itching for something to listen to, I would really love it and appreciate it if you would take this opportunity to check out the Bob and Weave podcast. 
Zach and I have really enjoyed creating the episodes about everything from Rodney Reed to Jeffrey Epstein, political topics, and even Star Wars. It would mean the world to me if you'd give us a listen and leave us a review on iTunes. And with that being said, that's a wrap, folks. It's been a great decade. Looking forward to talking to you all again on January 10th. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is attributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineering by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 7 logo was created by me with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I'd like to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month. And we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, add free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus terms apply.